know, this kind of deplatforming stuff, it's carving a lot of middle and reasonable conversations uh, out of the public square. And uh, it's not like people get more reasonable when there aren't people like us trying to bridge gaps mm -hmm. here. The lame screen media are the people who are on the side of the oligarchs who want to increase the volume on any, the slightest whiff of conflict gets jet fuel thrown on it. So voices like yours, what I'm trying to do, and in a sense, uh, people like Tucker Carlson, uh, the word virtue, as you, I'm sure you know, veer is the Latin word for male. Mm. Men are supposed to be virtuous, full of that uh, manly order, predictability, stability, the willingness to protect. You don't see this in mm. a, a softness that is uh, not good for the populace when a crisis hits. And so this is where you get, you know, everybody gets a trophy and nobody can fail and all of that. Want to shield people from negative consequences. Now, when you're talking about babies and toddlers and little kids, of course, you don't let them fall down the stairs and say, well, that'll teach them, right? But when kids get older, they do need to start getting out into the rough and tumble of the world and mm -hmm. failing in, in that way. And, you know, they need to have their ambitions scaled back and maybe their hearts broken once or twice so that they can learn some more rough hewn wisdom. You know, the sword doesn't get sharpened by running it in water. You've got to get a whetstone, some sparks and some sweat. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a society now where it's unbearable for a lot of people to see failure. And we just want to rush in and make it all better and give people money and support them. And oh, but men do have the capacity a little bit more than women to look at suffering and say, yeah, I went through it, I survived. And, and you know, the old Nietzsche thing, that which does not kill you makes you stronger. Then you gain a, a greater degree of self-trust and self-confidence because you know that you can weather the storm, you know mm -hmm. that you can be fine. But that is a bit more of a masculine characteristic. And people used to have their father wounds healed by a relationship with God. And now they, mm -hmm. they don't have that. And so, yeah. of course, you know, you, you take the rock out of the stream, the water rushes in and you take God out and the state rushes in. This has always been the big concern with regards to atheism. Uh, I've interviewed uh, Dr. Paul Vitz, has, it's called Faith of the Fatherless, a brief biography of the family of origins of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, Richard Dawkins, uh. Bertrand Russell, um, uh, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, all of the sort of the fathers of, of, of atheism. And um, no exception, they all have one thing in common, an, an yeah, absent yes. or highly abusive father. So there's mm. something there. I think that's true for feminism as sure, well. Sure, absolutely. So. Fathers endow masculinity. Women, no matter how great they are, and there, there are many great women out there, especially single moms, who are my personal heroes, but they can't impart masculinity. Well, and feminists acknowledge this when they say, well, gosh, you know, a woman can't dream of being a scientist unless she sees a lot of female scientists ahead of her. And it's like, but somehow boys can turn into men being surrounded by women. <laughs> no, I mean, I, th I think that masculine and feminine is, is really important. And one of the things that has occurred, of course, is this, you know, kind of Star Trek unisex thing that has been going on where they try to turn women into men and try and turn men into women. And that is, again, one of these lower birth rates, kind of depopulation-y kind of things, because mm -hmm. whether we like it or not, we have a lot of history uh, growing up uh, as a species and interacting with each other. And women are the way they are because that's what men have chosen uh, over time. And men are the way that men are because that's what women have chosen over time. We're kind of shadows cast by each other's biological and evolutionary choices over a long period of time. And if we just kind of deny that and say, okay, well, we can just completely invert these things, we're really going against our entire growing up as a species. And I think what happens is that the women get dissatisfied and the men uh, just don't find themselves particularly attracted. And then they take refuge in, you know, pornography, video games, the usual one-two mm -hmm. punch that takes out modern masculinity. And then the women, after, you know, being these, these tough, uh, sleep around imitations of cartoony alpha male stereotypes, you know, get washed up in their 30s and yeah. get baby rabies, panic, and then try and stitch a family together out of the leftovers, the Franken people who've survived their 20s. And I think all of that stuff is particularly brutal. And there's a reason why every single year after feminism, women get more and more and more unhappy. You can see that line straight marching up. But this is our peculiar constitution as a species, Patrick, that if we believe something is right, we will run it off a cliff. We will follow yeah. it off a cliff. We're Pied Piper. And if you get people to think, oh, well, you know, that feminism is right and the patriarchy is real and men hate women and women got to be like men and so on, people almost never, even if they're at the cliff edge, they will never, ever, well, almost never, we got we to put the almost in, otherwise this conversation would barely be worth having, but they almost yeah. never turn back. They will follow their ideals and their ideologies 
even off a cliff. And that capacity for self-sacrifice in pursuit of perceived virtue is a great strength. But man, mm -hmm. if you get those virtues wrong, it's a massive disaster, which I think is kind of what we're facing at the moment. Yeah, if your settings are off just by a little, little bit, you're gonna, you're not going <laughs> right. to end up landing where you want to. Yeah, this erasure of history is a standard Marxist trope, and it's a way of demoralizing people so that they feel that there's nothing to defend. Right. Uh, that there's no virtues, no. And America, I mean, of course, it has its flaws. I mean, as does the mm -hmm. West as a whole, but compared to the rest of the world, it's a absolutely gorgeous, philosophically birthed, Christian ethics birthed place where vast swaths of the world found solace from largely dictatorial systems mm -hmm, uh, people mm -hmm. fled to america because it was that shining city on the hill you know a lot of the guests you know the somewhat traditionally masculine life skills uh, that a lot of people have lost uh, you know it just takes one or two generations for a lot of those lessons to have to be relearned the hard way uh, i guess just like communism enjoy. I've got uh, a discussion really about people being attached to their foundational beliefs and rationalizing from that perspective. Um, I've got it bracketed by two, two different interviews. Well, the one at the end is a short documentary. And the one at the beginning that you would have just heard is uh, Stefan Molyneux and Patrick Coffin talking about Stefan Molyneux being deplatformed. So when I said that, you know, uh, these po public commentators are being assassinated, I was talking about their public deplatforming. So I was following uh, two or three interviews like that with Stefan Molyneux, trying to piece together from his perspective if he was seeing a pattern. And then, and now today I've done the same with Dan Dix. And uh, so I've got a little bit of a discussion about that, as well as the pattern of people reasoning from a conclusion. And so just... Um, for the most part, that's the danger we're into. When I don't blame people at all when they say, uh, you know, you see conspiracy everywhere. Not a, not everybody's a bad person, <laughs> and uh, I think that's 100% true. I think I don't I don't I don't think I've probably ever once in my entire lifetime run into somebody that knows the agenda that they're an agent of, like quote unquote in on it. I, I may not never have run into anyone like that. What it is is that these planted seeds of bad ideas, bad ideas that people want to believe, and then they latch onto them like they're, like that's their firm ground, that's what they're standing on. So it's very, very difficult. You get anywhere near these fundamental principles, it's very, very difficult to have a, a truth-seeking discussion. And so that's really what anti-logos is, when, it was, when you bump into somebody who's not willing to pursue truth through reason, through collaborative reason, and we'll just dig in, dig into their fundamental belief systems. And it's really, really, I've watched Michael Jones recently uh, trying. He's, he'll, he'll have an interview with anyone, no matter how much they disagree with them, and attempt, attempt to pursue Logos with them. <laughs> and then I saw this back and forth with Stefan Molyneux. In both cases, these were young Jewish guys and I don't think they're bad guys, extremely switched on, extremely articulate guys who just are, are, are dug in on some of their fundamental premises that they've had uh, taught and repeated to them throughout their existence. So you can see them um, just blind spots. We all have them. We all have them. They're just these huge blind spots. And so when you get anywhere near that, the discussion doesn't go anywhere. It's just like you're spinning your wheels. Anyway, enjoy. Enjoy the conversation here. I, I guess the the last point is there's, um, I feel like, you know, the topic shifted there momentarily to race. I, I, I now see it more clearly, the game that's being played. And these immutable characteristics, anything that's immutable that uh, is, is superficial as the color of your skin, they're just... Um, they're using these as empty categories that they can just plug anything that they want into. If you start to identify with one of these categories, it's not real. It's not a real category. There's no leader. There's no community around it. If you start to identify, you, you lose 
because the people that define those categories have just like completely labeled them with derogatory terms. So if you identify yourself, say, as a white man in America, which is a completely meaningless, empty category, well, that's easy to be then associated with uh, being the oppressor, being racist, being uh, nationalist, whatever, what have you. And the same thing with the uh, people of color. If they associate themselves with just an empty category, I mean, there is absolutely nothing in common between an uh, American with color in uh, Michigan versus Los Angeles versus New York. There's absolutely, you can't say anything in common other than the most superficial characteristics. And uh, I don't think that, I don't, I don't think those, I don't think generally those people are having the problem. Neither, in neither case, it's just the um, war of ideas happening in the media. I like Michael Jones' perspective that if you want to get ethnic about it, your smallest community group is the language you speak and the, and the religion you practice. That's your, that's your home base. So if you're a Portuguese Canadian Catholic, you know exactly what your community is. And no one's going to go after those communities because they're real. So <laughs> if, you try and, uh, if you try and slander a, ca- a community that's real, you'll just get destroyed because they are gonna, that's just going to embolden them. So the only categories that can slander are the empty ones that are completely meaningless. Anyhow, I just thought it was important to kind of define those terms because they're getting thrown around and you can see how they're just getting unbelievably abused and it's easy trap to fall into for people that aren't paying attention. For example, doing a little bit of homework on Dan Dix and some of this other fallout, I stumbled on this story happening. Indiana, for some crazy reason, Indiana is a battleground for um, the spiritual war. So people that are waking up, I think, in terms of the Christians there, the Catholics, you know, um, Notre Dame is there. They're 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 onto it. They're 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 clued into what the spiritual battle is all about. Anyhow, uh, same thing happened in St. Louis. They were they were switched on to what was happening and that they were coming for the statues. And so a group of Catholics, you know, St. Louis is a uh, French king, but he's also a Catholic saint. So they the uh, there's a whole uh, sort of I guess you'd call it human shields. There's a group of Catholics that uh, go out in public and pray rosaries to prevent violence. And uh, so there was a whole group of Catholics that went and were around the clock praying around the statue of St. Louis, knowing that the um, Black Lives Matter were going to get sent in there. And so because that's a real category, Catholics in St. Louis, you know, you try and they, there was one incident that, that one of the, one of the proxy warriors tried to beat up one of the old men saying his rosary. You know, it looks it looks absolutely preposterous. <laughs> so once you uh, once you kind of ground it against a real community, then the whole thing gets gets completely diffused. And I think that's what's what's happened. So then Indiana, there was a priest Rothrock, Father Rothrock, who said a sermon. I think it was Independence Day. I'm not exactly positive that of that. Uh, speaking out against the agenda that the um, Black Lives Matter people are proxy warriors for, and then published his sermon in the in the local church bulletin, and there was a whole skirmish around that. Anyway, Glenn Beck, you know who uh, I talk about in the recording here, so I uh, I, I followed that story, and eventually, and it, so he had a he had a blast called calling all Catholics. He he took a stand. He took a really really impressive stand because the issue in this case was not about race. And when you call all Catholics, you're obviously calling all races. It has nothing to do with race. And so I thought, you know, I'll do my part. Uh, it's a little, you know, as a keyboard warrior here, <laughs> to share this seven-minute clip from Glenn Beck calling all Catholics and go into my high school alumni uh, Facebook group. And it's been removed 24 hours later. So, you know, that community, either they don't want anything that could they just they don't want to look into it. I mean, that's anti-Logos. So now you've got a Catholic community that doesn't want to follow the facts. Two guys chipped in and like were upset by, by my sharing it. And I just thought I'd let it go and see if anyone would stand up for the Catholics in Indiana. And not, nothing. The administrators eventually just deleted the post to avoid the controversy. I just think that that's kind of telling. There's a, I mean, 
as an institution, the Catholics are failing the Catholics, generally, but there's still a few sparks of light out there. So anyhow, I, uh, I, I share everything here. I hope you enjoy. tomorrow but I just tuned in to uh, Glenn Beck having a, a serious rant about Tucker Carlson and I feel like I I need to share this today <laughs> there's like been a assassination of public thinkers in the last week or so I think Tucker Carlson Tucker Carlson still has his job but he's being physically threatened by the New York Times or you know being threatened to be doxxed which is the same as being threatened if you're a uh, perceived as a conservative commentator at the at the moment. I've always thought Glenn Beck was extremely watered down. I mean, he's articulate and interesting and easy to listen to. He has good guests, but I just, I, I thought he's just too mainstream, too softball. I just never felt like he really took a stand on anything, but he really took a stand for Tucker, so that's great. And even Tucker, I mean, he got famous, I think, with that row years ago with uh, Jon Stewart. He reinvented himself. I don't watch his show regularly, but when there's a good clip, it goes around. And he was a big fan of Jordan Peterson. And he he really, I, I would say he got behind the intellectual dark web. He has Dave Rubin on his show regularly. And I just, I think he's intellectually honest. And he's extremely ballsy. He's very brave in terms of speaking. We're following the facts, let's say, to where they, to, to where they lead. He definitely is one of the, I think he might be the only mainstream media personality that took an appropriate stand for WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Through the Peterson and Rubin and the Julian Assange story, I got a whole new respect for him. And, and he's speaking out. He's speaking out now against against the craziness, against the chaos. So I would like to, um, got some positivity again. I had some uh, personal betterment projects here that I'd like to share, uh, uplifting and inspirational, and then I'd like to talk a little bit about this, these uh, public thinkers, getting some theories around that and what I think's really happening, what I think they're saying that's dangerous. And then I would like to get into a serious, just open dialogue, where I think the minds are of the silent majority. I think that's the, obviously the turning point and maybe through the process between me thinking out loud about it and and feedback from you guys that maybe we could think of some trigger points to get these people more engaged it was a great quote it was a really great quote that went around yesterday corbett report james corbett and he he said uh, it was a quote from an intellectual in china and they said that it's impossible to wake somebody who's pretending to be sleeping. <laughs> and that's, I think, what's happening. That's what I think's happening. I mean, it, the silent majority, if you're over 45 at this point, you've had like 20 red pills shoved in your face in your, in your adult lifetime. You're desperately trying not to, not to notice <laughs> or pretending not to notice. And so I think it'd be interesting to try and get our heads into their head spaces. Anyway, let's start, start with the positivity and then I'll go through the list. Press for truth. Press for truth. Uh, Canadian guy. He also was, was, had his channel removed. So we'll, we'll go through that list and, and do, do a little bit of analysis of what we think could be happening there. The Betterman Project, I guess the number one one, was uh, Larkin Rose's? I took his I took his online seminar with his, I don't know if it's his wife or his girlfriend. They're fantastic. They're both fantastic seminar leaders, and they probably had um, participants in real life. I don't know. I'm guessing 20 or 30 participants in person, and then they recorded it as a webinar as well. They took in kind of unsuspecting guests at the end as a, as a demonstration, and basically what the seminar was was how to talk to brainwash people. So this is the theme of today. 
how to talk, how to talk to brainwash people. And so I'd like to share a little bit of, of some of that coaching in the sense that, not that you can get into the techniques exactly, but I thought he had a couple of pearls of wisdom that can be very, very helpful for talking to the um, silent majority. And that is that for the most part, unless you're talking about a sociopath or a psychopath, for the most part, these are good people. These are good-hearted, good human beings with the right values, same values, right, you know, the same values as, as, a, as you or I. It's just that they're just completely shrouded. They're completely shrouded in these, in these programming, in these programs they've downloaded and taken on board. And the trick is to identify and relate to that part of them that is the good, the good human and be able to get through and make sure they know that that's who you're talking to and that it's not a it's not a boxing ring because as soon as it gets into an argumentative you know tit for tat uh, everybody's going to retreat into their corners and come out swinging <laughs> and you get nowhere you may you may even harden harden their belief in some of their uh, in some of their programs i thought it was really really fantastic i will post the the, the link it was extremely affordable as well. Uh, I think seven and a half hours for $75. And I'm still not through. I finished the course, but I'm not all the way through the extra materials. There are some extra simulations today that I haven't gone through yet. But it sets the tone. It sets the tone for talking to your neighbors and talking to your friends, the people that, that have got these trigger words, you know, conspiracy or fake news or fake facts or whatever. Whatever the conspiracy, whatever the trigger words they're carrying around to keep themselves uh, pretending to sleep, basically. So, so that was very powerful. And of course, channeling energy into betterment is is like the absolute best way to channel your energy because there's there's waves and waves and waves of depressing news. And then when you feel like you start to understand things. It's like, oh my God, he's even more <laughs> dark because you're you're seeing the cross and you're seeing the hill and you're like, oh my God, how how are we gonna pull ourselves out of this? But I will say that E. Michael Jones frequently makes the point, and if you, even if you just think in your own life, that the light can go on in a second. It takes nothing for the light to go on and to see through to see through the curtain. Basically, that's the hopeful part. It's just a matter of keeping, keep on keeping on. Uh, the other one was a really great clip, a Larkin Rose one, that was talking about how do you know what you know? And I guess that's another way of crack, cracking into the brainwashing. This is really the theme of today, that I want to talk about what we don't notice. I mean, I must have been doing it all my life as well. You don't notice that you take on these premises, these axioms. Peterson used to say that if you bump someone in their axiom, they get really annoyed. You take on these axioms, these fundamental life principles or foundational beliefs, and you carry them around for so long, you just, and a lot of the people repeat them, and feed them back to you. So you, you take them on as true uh, over time. It's really, really touchy when you start to bump into people's axioms. <laughs> and so in this in this talk, how do you know what you know, Larkin Rose made some really great points. You know, one is the, I guess it's sort of obvious, but I've never seen it so obvious as this current craziness of the pandemonium. The one is that, you know, something that's emotionally charged, this goes for like office gossip as well, or slander, like the, the scary lie or the emotionally charged lie makes its way around halfway around the world before like the the boring truth sits down to breakfast you know like it's like unbelievable that the facts are constantly getting corrected but the correction is so dull nobody's talking about that they're just talking about the latest most sensational piece of the story and so what you get is this collective view of things cobbled together with everyone carrying around their scariest piece of the story and it becomes like this mania this crazy mania and then try and and then they get attached they seem to get really really attached to these scary beliefs i guess for, for a few reasons one they look completely foolish 
if they knew how fooled they are. But the other one, it starts to become sort of a part of them. It's part of their identity. They're imagining themselves in this contagion movie where they're the hero and they're doing everything they're told and they're saving their friends and neighbors by telling them all these cautions. And I think those two pieces of the puzzle just make it stick. They, they're afraid of seeing themselves as a fool and they're afraid of letting go of their new contagion identity. <laughs> and so I think... In this really strange way, I mean, I know there's been thinkers and speakers and writers that have predicted this years ago, that um, that a an outbreak kind of story could play perfectly into the blind spots of most people. It's That's what it seems like. Everyone, you know, like the technical people, there's like the, the headline news type people, there's like the uh, germaphobe type people. There's like the bubble wrap parents type people. There's like the Karens. Like there's all, everyone's got their blind spot and there's something in this story for everybody. And eventually you cobble the whole thing together and it just looks like, well, how could 98% of the people be be so wrong? You know, that's how, that's how. And then And then you've just got the constant resonance of like a hypnotism on the TV and that's it. There you go try and try and reverse that i mean it's it takes it really takes some techniques and I, that's why i'm really really glad i took this this seminar with larkin rose and his partner and i haven't tried it out yet but i'm i'm optimistic i'm optimistic but it's essentially planting the seeds of doubt that's okay here's a re, here's a really great analogy from the course you're you're a doctor Okay, a kid comes in with a broken leg skateboarding. You you don't actually mend the leg. You just set it. You know, you just set it and let nature take its course. So the idea is to just plant a couple of doubts. You don't want to get into a conflict. You want that person to go away thinking. You want the whole thing to be letting that person think out loud or quietly by planting seeds, gently planting seeds of doubt to the to their human side their most human side, not the not the downloaded program side. And if you can set a couple of contradictions in their downloaded programs, and can you make point those out to, to let them be obvious, they could walk away and heal themselves. I mean, that's by far the best. No conflict. You're not looking for an argument. As soon as you go into argument mode, you lose. So you, what you're trying to do is set the two the contradictions next to one another and let, let experience basically heal heal the break i guess i will go into these speakers in a little bit of speculation this is going to be speculation this is all too fresh for it to be anything else but the press for truth guy dan dix i think his name is i don't know i mean i've seen his work it's great he's just a public thinker he's just he's just the most gentle canadian guy with a really good head on his shoulders and a, and a history i don't know if it's five or ten years of videos on youtube just vanish overnight with no warning and he's not an agitator i mean you could there's there's sort of accusations you could hurl each each one of these guys for oh well that must have been where they stepped over the line dan dix is just and maybe that's it maybe that's what made him dangerous <laughs> that once you once you like start following him like it takes nothing somebody shares his video when he goes to a protest and points out the flaws in their thinking and the danger in their thinking uh, he's in Vancouver, so that's what he was doing in Vancouver. Immediately, you can see this is just a sensible guy following the facts, and so maybe that's what made him dangerous. It's hard. It's hard to really guess, or maybe the, you know, the thought police got bored at YouTube. I don't think. It, I don't think that's the case. That they just started over, over, overstep. There's just too many all at once. Or it could be one or two of them really were over the target, and they took out like six or eight to make it look like. To hide <laughs> the ones they were most nervous about. That's that's getting quite conspiratorial. But Stefan Molyneux, he's really softened. He's really softened the last couple of years. He's a bit belligerent on his call-in show, but you know, I guess people that call in are looking for that. They want a, sort of an intellectual wake-up call in their life. His mind, he's just he's honest. He's a good public thinker, and he's following his intellect wherever it leads and he's done some fantastic he did a documentary on hong kong before that broke i mean maybe that was an issue you know maybe that got him on somebody's radar 
he did this around the world thing with Laura, Lauren Southern, um, New Zealand and Australia, and they were they were they were a bit too right for me at that time, but they're they're trying they're trying to poke the holes in in the mass immigration story and some of these sort of super lefty uh, agendas that are now like becoming a serious problem. He got banned from Twitter right after he posted an essay on what I believe. You know, he was it was like his own personal philosophy. I'm quite aligned. I, I read that maybe two weeks ago, and I'll share it. I think he's very, he's a good mix of Mark Passio and Stefan Molyneux. <laughs> he's got some, some principles that are completely aligned with what makes sense to me. And so if you're going to try and figure out what the litmus test is for Stefan Molyneux, like exactly what was it that he said or did that put him over the edge, again, he's once you get following him, you can tell he's not a bad guy. He's, he, he has a few sort of like provocative topics that get him into trouble, I guess you'd say. Like for some reason he got sucked into this IQ and race conversation, which is just like completely useless, other than to say, you know, there, there are different cultures with different strengths. I mean, otherwise, why get into it? But anyway... That's that's one that rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but he's tried to be honest about it, and it's it's definitely not racial per se. But I think you know that that one's just like why give that topic much airtime? Not sure, but anyway, the fact is that he's outstanding at pointing out the agendas, especially communistic and socialistic agendas, and he's extremely good on his feet and articulate and intellectually honest. Again, so. Maybe that's the formula that gets you cut at this point. These guys aren't going to go away permanently. They're going to be boosting these peer-to-peer networks, but those are so fractured right now that it's definitely a blow when you get bumped off of YouTube. But YouTube is is going to die fast. People have lost, just like Patreon last year, people have lost a lot of faith, uh, all faith, in in uh, their ability to govern themselves. It's just a matter of where that they're going to gravitate to next. Uh, Michael Jones, he's been pulled from... Amazon and YouTube, I believe. I believe YouTube as well. So he's been a, an author, a best-selling author on Amazon for more than 20 years. Overnight, again, just vanished. He thinks it has to do with a criticism he did of a film that Amazon produced called Nazi Hunters with Al Pacino in it because he had a very pointed criticism of that film, which sounds justified. I haven't seen it yet, but I don't think so. I think again, if you if you just look at the pattern across these guys, he's a public thinker that's honest, that's following the trails. He sees the agendas very very clearly and calls them out. He's not afraid to call anything out. When people start to have their doubts and they, and one of their friends sends them a clip like this, you know, it's extremely sympathetic. You start, oh, this guy doesn't have any hate in him at all. He's a staunch Catholic. You know, Catholics are just want everybody to to uh, <laughs> to be uh, compassionate and open. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is that you've got these people with solid followings that are able to think out loud in public and they're not afraid of anybody. And they can see agendas like communist. They can see certain agendas as clear as day. He gets, you know, I, I maybe I should have done trigger warnings and my past episode, the, some of the language he uses, people might find off-putting, but you have to kind of follow how he's gotten into some of these. So he will say, he will use the term Jews, you know, and that's a red flag for most people. Like, we've been really, really hammered that anti-Semitism is like one of the worst things of this century, but not noticing that a lot of these minorities, a lot of these minorities have been programmed into us that we can't talk about it and then they're used for air cover for a hidden agenda that's completely destructive that comes in underneath so yes there's nothing wrong you know with your brother or your friend or your friend's son or your nephew that has pursued a homosexual lifestyle those people you know you have to have compassion for anybody that ta- that is a, a minority like that pursuing an alternative lifestyle but what he's railing against is that you're using these fragile p- 
people or these fragile categories as air cover to bring in a, an unbelievably destructive political agenda underneath. Same thing with with the Jewish people. He's got he wrote a book I think ten years ago called the Jewish revolutionary spirit and on a monthly basis he has Jewish people that read that book and see the agenda that they've been used for so again you know it's a discriminated minority but they're used as air cover for a political agenda that is designed to dismantle Western society so when you hear somebody like that railing against the Jews, you have to know exactly how he's defining that term and why he's found himself on that track. Because he said when he went to write that book, he didn't even know, and that's my Catholic upbringing, what, what I've got friends and neighbors, and my teaching for what Jewish people were, is I, wasn't, I didn't have a lot of interaction, a little bit in the neighborhood. They're good neighbors. They're good friends, you know. They're nice people to know, <laughs> you know. That's so, and and they are. That's what the, my personal experience with Jewish people is. But there's an agenda that they're being used for. It's just underneath the surface, and it takes a lot of digging. And that's what he's done. He's and so the Jewish revolutionary spirit has switched the lights on for a lot of Jewish people that uh, have found themselves asking these questions, like what what exactly agenda have I been used for? And that's what's happening with the, the alternative lifestyle minorities as well. I'm, I guess that is a bit of a trigger warning when you hear the clip at the end. If some of that language is off-putting, please understand that he's talking about these people being used as proxy wars, warriors for unbelievably destructive political agendas. And then Tucker, I talked about doxing. So that's, that's four right there, if you include Dan Dix, Press for Truth. And I think, I think there's more than that. There's six or eight. There's definitely a cleansing. So, yes, so the agenda behind that, I mean, it could be silencing, okay? It could be like, but I, it's definitely like, okay, <laughs> let's go back to, to uh, Alex Jones, for example. For me, he's an obvious shill. I guess he wasn't obvious right away. He's, again, an articulate, intelligent guy, but there's nothing honest to me about his agenda. <laughs> he's, he has great guests, and they, have, they cover some great material. But to me, he's been designed to discredit the whole space. And so when he was, quote-unquote, barred from all the media platforms, he just never went away. And I always wondered, like, what's that about if he's, a, if he's essentially an insider? And I think uh, in his case, it was just used as like a get, get, get the people, the super right people that are starting to, I guess, go a little bit fringe get them really, really annoyed and get them rallying behind Trump as their savior. I think that's probably the, the mechanism they were using with Alex Jones. With these people, it might be that they're just trying to aggravate. They're trying to get, you know, they're trying to, they want a street war. They want a street war between left and right so that the majority will call for, you know, a greater martial law and lockdown and greater, stronger rule. And maybe they'll parade Trump as the savior in that. It's completely possible. I think there's more to it. It's not just trying to agitate the base of these people. I think they actually are dangerous because they're, they have solid followings and they're able to see the agenda immediately and they're able to call out the propaganda immediately. And so when anybody starts asking questions and they get fed one of these people, if you look into it a little bit, they're very sympathetic and it's easy to see that they're authentic. They're authentically pursuing what they think is best, and so they're very convincing. I think I'll just try and walk through this silent maturity mindset as best as I can, and then I will include the strongest hitting points that Michael Jones has had recently from a documentary, actually. It's, it's extremely like potent. It's 60 minutes or something. And it's got three experts on there. I'm not familiar with the other guys. But if you put the story together, it's unbelievably compelling. But so I just, I think, I think it might be useful. Given this brainwashing talk uh, and given, given this, um, this problem that it's the silent majority that is really the opportunity and the problem all at once, all wrapped into one. And, and there is a certain urgency because there's a certain point where uh, I think it is too late at a certain point.
so we're having this opportunity for a lull right now so it's a perfect opportunity to talk it up before the next whatever whatever the next mechanism planned is so it goes something like this these people that are fake sleeping and i think i mean when you are able to get your head this is what was happening to me today a little bit when you're able to get your head into the space of the amount of like diabolical planning that would take that it takes to dismantle what's best of our human natures by these little programs and and then you see like you see young men 30 years old with like who who want to be successful and they can't you know put an ounce of energy into learning skills and apprenticing and they they're the, the level of engineering programming that it would that it's must have taken an advanced planning it's just it's impossible it's boggling it's boggling so i think it's not quite like that it's not quite like the smoky room and the uh, there, there is there is a power base at the top but i don't think it's all advanced engineered it's more like you get these mindsets out there and then you have these useful idiots to get an agenda that the power base likes and then all they have to do is get behind that so i don't think the actual like <laughs> guys behind the curtain the wizards behind the curtain with the smoky in the smoky room i don't think they actually hatch a lot of this a lot of this comes out of disgruntled revolutionaries if you want to call them that people that are working against society they've got certain things going on wrong in their life and they get a destructive bent and they get the, the wrong incentives and they come up with these ideas and then when the powers that be catch them they just get behind them and promote them and i think it's more like that and so then you get this like mosaic of these agendas it's like i can't imagine the darkest most intelligent mind coming up with this it must have just it must have just cobbled itself together by allowing these agendas to fester and thrive through through downloading the programs and then promoting them in the in the media space but it's something like this there's a whole history around okay <laughs> I, I don't think i can go through all of the agendas but somehow you've uh destroyed people's relationship with the higher power somehow you've gotten people isolated into communities they don't feel attached to they don't know their neighbors they they get attached to these technologies and they go to other cities for other jobs so they're they're really really superficial connection to their communities uh, so then you've got them sort of you know as media communities and that's so much more controllable and you, you can slice them into segments and manage manage their perceptions from there at some level i think it's something like they get burnt out or they've been fooled so many times or they've tried to get to the bottom of some issues and they just never could reach the bottom of it i mean that's probably what happens first and you just find layers and layers and layers of deception until you give up and just say uh you know truth isn't knowable the only truth that's really knowable at some point I think they come to this conclusion. The only truth that's really knowable is my experience. So my job is to optimize my experience and come what may because when I try and look into facts and research it's just a moray of of confusing conflicting uh material. And so my best way to to manage my personal experience is to stick with the crowd. whatever the crowd's doing that's going to be the path of least resistance in the near term <laughs> that's this is the thinking and uh if i stick with the path of least resistance that's going to optimize my personal personal experience so that's another like kind of priority of mine and you know if if uh if i get myself into a corner then then i'll kick, kick in the gear but otherwise i'm just going to i'm going to try and maximize my niceties and stick stick with the crowd basically and if you know if the whole thing falls off into the if the if the west coast falls off into the sea well at least I'll you know 
I'll have my comforts and I'll have my company and I guess I'll just I'll just go with it when the time comes. It's something like that. So it's not that they're not seeing some of this and sniffing that there's some really nasty sh- shite out there, but until it comes right into their face, they they're they're gonna they're gonna eat their Cheetos and have their remote control and they're gonna let this thing go by until. So I would recommend this Candles in the Dark seminar from Larkin Rose on how to talk to these people. And then, of course, there's I'm, in the chats I'm in, there's loved ones. There's plenty of families. I don't know in terms of fathers and sons. My, my kids are young and fathers and daughters, so it's not like there's going to be a big wedge between us in terms of, it, um, in terms of the issues. I'm sure people are having issues with their, with their teens and with their adult kids as well with trying to talk through some of this I'm guess I'm saying that the loved ones the people that know these people it's a responsibility for us to try and crack that nut and get them and get them active before before it's too late and I am open for suggestions <laughs> of secret formulas I guess I got some really good ones from Larkin it's do or die I mean I really think it's like five weeks maybe if that and it, and, the, and the news is just so crazy turning off the news I mean turning off the mainstream that's like step number one if you can convince people to do that and I, when I say mainstream I mean every single mainstream radio station every single mainstream TV like right off and then the Netflix I think I think a lot of that's programming as well I think it probably mostly is if you get approved to get onto Netflix and you know Amazon Prime these these sources it's got to be a pull. You can't be a push. If you're on any kind of a push, any kind of a medium that, that someone has pre-selected the content, you know, it's, it's um, it, including book lists, including like primary popular bookshelves, quote unquote, all of that. Uh, you really have to find your own trail. Anyhow, so I'll leave off with this uh, hard-hitting documentary clips from uh, Dr. Jones. I I wasn't trying to bring everybody down. <laughs> I just think. I just think that's the nut to crack. That's the nut to crack right now. And so you got to start with your loved ones, and then you got to you got to be gentle with the uh, setting the setting the the brakes in uh, contradiction with one another. All right. So enjoy the uh, supporting materials, and we'll be back in a week. Take care. Google and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. Psychoanalysis never operated that way. There were a set of core doctrines. It was like a religion, you know, literally like a religion, or like a sort of political view like communism or something like that, where you had to accept certain things. And if you didn't, well, you just weren't part of the group anymore. It's portrayed as medicine because of the influence that the people who want to promote this have over modern culture. Okay, and so you have all sorts of people now disciples of the new psychology. One of them is a man by the name of uh, Yastrov, who ends up at the University of Wisconsin. This is Heinz's description of what Yastrov was doing at the University of Wisconsin. Yastrov targeted Christianity in a way that Pierce did not, as the prime example of the forcible imposition of thought on a community of people In his course at Wisconsin on the psychology of belief and in his popular writings, he spoke of, quote, the sad page of history that records the church's techniques of censorship and suppression of thought. He also used the biblical and rabbinical phraseology of the remnant of Israel when he referred to the dissident few who fight in all times and places for freedom of thought. There will always be a saving remnant, he wrote, who are willing to give up dogma. Well, wait a minute. I thought you were in medicine. I thought you were doing medicine here. Well, what you're seeing here is that deviance has been redefined. It will be redefined over the course of the century. And what used to be uh, a sin is now a virtue. For example, homosexuality. What used to be an aberration is now normal. And what used to be normal 
namely, let's say, the revulsion at homosexuality is now a thought crime under the regime of political correctness. So a student at Temple University, my alma mater, who objects to the production of Corpus Christi by the university, was dragged out and taken to the psychiatric clinic at Temple University Hospital for objecting to a blasphemous homosexual propaganda play. Well, this is the essence of political correctness. as the essence of what happened during the course of the 20th century. Deviance was redefined as its opposite. Deviance is binary. Deviance is prohibition. There is never going to be a world without deviance. What you have here is the umwertung aller to the transvaluation of values where what was good is now bad and what was good is now wicked. This happens in the realm of psychology largely through the efforts of people like Freud. So you see this as a way of cultural subversion. Freud became the vehicle for cultural subversion and was interested in those particular terms. It was a philosophy of anti-Semitism. And in that philosophy, they really used uh, fundamental psychoanalytic concepts. And so they had the idea that anti-Semitism fundamentally comes from repressing nature. I mean, that's about as psychoanalytic as you can get. By repressing nature, you develop hatred to the Jews. And they tried to show that people, in the end, uh, with healthy family relationships, people who looked up to their mothers and fathers, people who had a strong religious orientation, um, that these people tended to have negative views about Jews and that essentially these negative views about Jews were a result of repression within the family, that they had hostility towards their parents, even though there's absolutely no evidence of this in any of the records that they had. They interpreted uh, positive feelings for parents as sort of sublimations of hostility because in the records, the, the people who had strong family relationships, had sort of strong attitudes about their in-group or their family, their nation, their race. These people tended to, to think, uh, to have more negative views about Jews because after all, Jews were an out-group. Um, they, uh, they, they interpreted these positive attitudes about their family as, you know, repressions of hostility towards their parents. And conversely, when they found uh, sort of surface feelings of anxiety about their parents, they interpreted those as signs of deep affection. And so the people that they were idealizing had sort of anxieties about whether their parents loved them. They had ambivalences about their sexual uh, identity and so on. These were the people that the Frankfurt School were, were promulgating as the ideal liberal personality. The major obstacle was the family. The nuclear family, uh, with the father in the lead role, was extremely dangerous. Frankfurt School saw it as a repressive structure. So the nuclear family, with uh, as, as a certain amount of restraint that's necessary for a family to function, was the place that uh, people learned uh, to be repressed. So it became very, very important to undermine the family. When I was a student at Johns Hopkins, I can recall in sociology and political science class, they did nothing but talk about this book published in 1950, The Authoritarian Personality. But you know, they talked about it, they analyzed it, they criticized it, they talked about the methodologies and this and that. We actually had, it was a subject on my exams. But you know, the weird thing was, they never assigned the book for us to read. Uh, when I was browsing a used bookstore, that I discovered the reason why they never assigned the book. Lo and behold, right here on the introductory page, The Authoritarian Personality, copyright 1950 by the American Jewish Committee. This is ethnic politics. This isn't science. Uh, embarked upon uh, the promotion of a policy that, that is to deconstruct, or that is to tear down the major... Uh, foundations of Western society, the, the loyalty to the nuclear family, uh, loyalty to religion, to God, and, uh, and uh, loyalty to country. And in pursuit of doing that, uh, they play fast and loose with the facts. It's the, for them, it's the thought or the ideology that counts, not the empiric uh, justifi justification for, for conclusions. The Frankfurt School at its base developed the ideology that you had to sort of reject your family. By rejecting your family, you would then, you would be less likely to be anti-Jewish. And so, you know, it's a remarkable thing because they never supposed that Jewish children should reject their parents. They're going to 
promulgate Judaism to the next generation, you have to have children who identify with their parents. But in the authoritarian personality, identifying with your parents, who were Christian especially, was the epitome of pathology. This had to be eradicated. Suddenly there were thousands, tens of thousands of new professors, and they all held this ideology, which was an ideology that was based on advancing their own interests. The whole point of these uh, books was pretty much the same as the authoritarian personality. The idea is that majorities uh, must tolerate minorities. They should not be concerned about their own eclipse. Place Boazian ideology and the Frankfurt School come together is in their agreement that majorities can have no rights. This arises from the notion that there are no true majorities. So, for example, while Jews may form a cohesive, solid, and long-lasting minority group, the ideas of cultural relativism and of the Frankfurt School act to disintegrate majorities at every institutional level. So, for example, in law schools, there are interest groups and student organizations for every imaginable ethnicity, except for the majority. Majority students simply don't exist. Now, a white man can be gay, he can be a transsexual, and then he becomes a minority. He is higher quality as a result of being made into a minority. A white woman can become a feminist, and so she can be a member of a minority. So piece by piece, the majority is simply dismantled. This is the basis of the idea that majorities cannot exist. If a majority exists in the thinking of the Frankfurt School and in the thinking of the Boazians, it is simply not dismantled yet. And yet minority groups, by definition, are supposed to be immune from this, although in practice only one minority is immune from this process of disintegration. Again, uh, I make the point at one point, you know, that this is never... Uh thought about as an ideology, say in Israel, where you have a very clear ideology, this is a Jewish state, it's going to remain a Jewish state, it has a moral right to remain a Jewish state, and so on. But again, this is, this is an ideology that you see throughout history, that all peoples have, you know, they've basically gotten a hunk of land and they've defended it. This has been the, the, the major, um, you know, story, obviously, in human history, and it's certainly the case with Zionists in Israel. So it's a normal human uh, undertaking. Taboo or that whole sense of speech code and it was called political correctness. My son's generation were probably more sensitive to it than I was because they were living under this code every day. What, what's the big deal here? Well this was sort of that there was a deeper grammar to this discussion and that it wasn't black and it wasn't homosexual that these were sort of the puppets that were out there dancing uh, maybe the deeper grammar had to do with social engineering. In other words, using race to achieve certain ends. Do you know what I mean? That was getting to the point where you're not allowed to talk about the guy behind the screen.
yourself. <laughs>